Once again, I'm so grateful for your presence in our assembly this evening, for the opportunity that's afforded me to try to help us to broaden our understanding of spiritual things. If you'll chunk out just a little period of time at the end, I have some remarks I'd like to make that are personal in nature, but I want to focus our attention on, on our study tonight. Uh, if you would please open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Joshua, the third chapter. Joshua, the third chapter. In Joshua chapter 3, I want to read just a few verses as we begin our study. It says in verse 1, And Joshua rose up early in the morning, and they removed from Shittim and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. And it came to pass after three days that the officers went through the midst of the camp and they commanded the people saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of Jehovah your God and the priests, the Levites bearing it, then ye shall remove it from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Come not near unto it that ye may know the way by which we must go for ye have not passed this way before. You remember in our study this morning that we identified Moses as one who had committed sin and he was not permitted then to go into the promised land. We noted this morning as well from Joshua chapter 1 that Joshua was given the responsibility of leading the children of Israel into the promised land. This remark that he makes in verse 4 of chapter 3 that you have not passed this way. Joshua is telling them that you're about to see some things that you've never seen before. You're going to have some experiences you've not had before. And these are going to be strange to you because uh, you've not come this way. Now all of us from time to time, I'm sure, when we begin to reflect upon what the future may hold, we may raise that question. Well, I wonder what's there. I wonder what kind of things we're going to be facing as time passes. And I think it's appropriate that we give thought to that. And as I've mentioned earlier this week, I don't know the answer to that to the nth degree because I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. And, but there are some things that we can examine about the future and come to some conclusions, I think, that might be helpful to us. In fact, in this very text, we note in this very text that Joshua tells them in verse 13 that you need to follow the priest. And he said, It shall come to pass when the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of, the, of Jehovah, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, even the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand in one heap. And it came to pass when the people removed from their tents to pass over the Jordan, the priests that bear the ark of the covenant being before the people, and when they that bear the ark were come unto, jo unto the Jordan, all its banks, all the time of harvest, that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great way off at Adem, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those that went down toward the sea of Arabah, even the salt sea, were wholly cut off, and the people passed right over against Jericho. And the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of Jehovah stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel passed over on dry ground until all the nation were passed clean over the Jordan. Now I want you to picture that. Joshua is telling them, you've never done anything like this before. This is a new path. As we would say in Kentucky, we're plowing new ground. Never been here before. And you're going to see some great and mighty 
things. And in verse 10 of this text, he said, because you see these things, you're going to know that the living God is among you. And so he prepares them to go across the Jordan River, follow the priest, and the waters would be cut off and you'll go across on dry ground. Now there's a reason for that. You'll note in the fourth chapter of the book of Joshua, in verse 20 beginning, the text tells us that they took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan River and he erected a pillar of stones. And he said in verse 21, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What meaneth these stones? Then ye shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For Jehovah your God drieth up the waters of the Jordan from before you, until ye were passed over as Jehovah your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were passed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of Jehovah, that it is mighty, that ye may fear Jehovah your God forever. Brethren and friends, be impressed with this text. Young people, you be impressed with this text. Their fathers had seen the parting of the waters of the Red Sea. They'd been impressed with that. But we've got a generation that has grown up during this period of 40 years of wilderness wandering that though they had seen the provisions of God, they hadn't seen anything like the parting of the waters of the Red Sea. And Joshua is about to lead them across the waters of the Jordan River during the time of the flood stage so that they might know that God is among them. And when he started the priest into the waters, the waters parted. Essentially the waters were stopped. And they went across on dry ground. Now the writer says that you look at this pillar of stones, your children are going to ask questions about that. Now they could ask, what, what, does these, or what do these stones mean? And you could say, well, this marks the place where we crossed over into the land. But that's not the thing they needed. We're talking this week about things that had to remember that God did that. We're talking this week about things that help us to to build in our minds the majesty of God. They needed to know who God is. God did that. And you teach your children what God did to bring you into this land. This is not just a path marker. This is to demonstrate the greatness of the things that God did. And you saw that and you remember that. And so when you're passing this way and you see this pillar of stones, you remember that nothing like this ever happened in your history. You didn't see the parting of the Red Sea, but you saw this. And you impress your children with such things. Now our point is, what does the future hold? Would you grant that from Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 4, their future held some grand things for them? Entering into the promised land. And then the fighting for the land so that they could have that which God had promised. And then you come to the end of that time in Joshua chapter 11, Joshua chapter 21 and 23 as we noted this morning. And these were the very things that God promised years and years ago to their father Abraham. And now it's been completed. Now would you be impressed with that? Well they needed to be impressed with that. Now they're leaving behind some things, but they're going forward. This is what the future would hold for them. Now when we look at our world, we've entitled this series of lessons, We Live in a Different World.
noting some things about the world that we live in in comparison to how I was growing up, there was a whole lot of, or a lot of things that are really different. And I dare say that's true with most of you. Don't recognize the world that we live in when we compare it to what it was when we were children. But see, that's not the problem. That's not the contrast. The world has always been wicked. It has varied from time to time. I had a brother in Arkansas tell me one time, he said, I believe things are worse than they've ever been. I said, no, they may be bad, but they're not any worse than they've ever been. You study about the city of Corinth and the time in which the apostles were walking the earth. That's what we're going to look at. The world was just terrible. And as we look around about us today, there are things that we've talked about this week that are quite alarming. And you look on the board and here's some quotations from William Barclay in his book on, on Galatians chapter 5 as he's discussing the works of the flesh. And he says, in Greece there has never been any shame and it's the merest commonplace as indeed it was. He said, we keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for the day-to-day -day needs of the body, but we have wives in order to produce children legitimately and to have a trustworthy guardian of our homes. Now what does that say about the morality of first century times? When the apostles were walking the earth, when the Lord was walking the earth, this was the circumstance that existed. And when you look at the Roman Empire, uh, William Barclay quoting J.J. Chapman, he said that it was an age when shame seemed to have vanished from the earth. They weren't ashamed of anything. And when you look at the practice of adultery, also quoted by William Barclay, Seneca, uh, Seneca is quoted, women, Roman women were married to be divorced and were divorced to be married. Some of them distinguished the years, not by the names of the councils, but by the names of their husbands. In our study this morning, we noted that certain things are dated in relationship to kings. And I made the comment, wouldn't it be nice if we just say that was 1462 or something? No, that was in relationship to this king or that king. Can you imagine dating events depending on who you were married to? to have so many husbands or wives that that's how you dated things. Who was my wife at the time? Well, that was first century times. And we've talked this week about the practice of homosexuality. They were in homosexual relationships and some during that era of time, as you'll note, they married little boys. Now you want to talk about ungodly and immoral world in which we live? This was the time during which the New Testament was written. Also, he tells us that there was no strong body of opinion against immorality. To the Greco-Roman world, immorality in sexual matters was not immorality. It was established custom and practice. Now, you want to see some comparative things? My dates are not 2022, but close. America, 2021. The latest results are based, it says, on Gallup's annual values and belief poll conducted May of 2020. The poll updated several trends on American views about marriage asked previously over the past two decades. Now, this is interesting to me. said the trends are consistent with Americans' evolving views of marriage. Do you find it interesting that when we begin to talk about a changing moral standard from the time many of us were children to the time of today, we're talking about that which erodes the home? There's the, the crucible of controversy. 
66%, it says, now believe it is morally acceptable to have a baby outside of marriage, an increase from 53% the first year of the question was asked in 2001. 72%, up from 53% in 2001, considered sex between an unmarried man and woman morally acceptable. 72%, nothing wrong with that, they said. Now here is something that I want to call to your attention. A poll that was taken in 2021, and just to try to illustrate, and I don't want this to be too complicated, so I just want to focus on one element of this, of this comparative chart. In the year 2006, this was a survey that uh, was asking the question, is it important for couples to marry if they plan to spend the rest of their lives together? Now, I know how you would answer that. But this was a general poll that was asked, and it was asked of different categories of people. And among those who were married in 2006 who were asked, is it important for couples to marry if they plan to spend their life together? In 2006, 60% said, yes, that's important. And when you come over here to 2020, we've got 43% that said that's important to get married. Now, do you see a change that has taken place in a relatively short time? And I would suggest to you that that's very revealing. And then this we talked about in our previous study. You can't choose sexuality, but you can choose Jesus. Now you can choose the Bible too. And so now we've got the introduction of the Queen James Bible. Now, I know that some of this statistic stuff is... It, Probably not all that interesting, but I think it is as it relates the world that we live in. And that's what we're talking about. We live in a different world. And when we begin to compare just a very few numbers of years, we see some dramatic changes that have taken place. On this chart, we want to note that the U.S. Uh, depicts same-sex marriage. I know that in California, we, we talked about this earlier, that, that there was a, a referendum that was put on the ballot and about 60-some percent said, no, we don't want that. We don't want that. And then some years later, it was passed by the Supreme Court, and now we got it whether we want it or not. But when you look at the numbers, the numbers, now this is June the 8th, 2021, we found that 70% of people polled across the United States said we're okay with same-sex marriage, 70%. Now, if you'd asked that question when I was a boy, it would have been pretty close to zero. We don't want that. But now here just in, oh, four or five years since I was a boy, we see this kind of change that has taken place. Does that bother you? It demonstrates, it illustrates the world that we would be in. And I want us to see that's what we're talking about. We live in a different world. And look at this chart, if you would, please, and then we'll be through with these. But I want you to note that as we look at, at the dates, here's 2019, and you'll notice the, the color code on, on this. It seems to, to indicate, and I, I've uh, wanted to be able to draw some circles and lines, as some of you know me. I like to do that, but I didn't know how to make it work on the computer. But this is a poll about uh, who goes to worship God and who don't, okay? Who goes to worship God and, and who don't? Well, way back in 2019, way back yonder, you know, in 2019, we find that this was the percentages that said, well, we go, we go uh, at least once or twice a month. 2019, 34% went once or twice a month. In the year 2020, we've got 31%. They will go to church once or twice a month. And then in 
the year 2021, we've got 28% that say, well, we go once or twice a month. And then the poll shows another question. Do you go just a few times a year? Now we've got 13% that went just a few times a year, and you can figure this out. But then this next poll is the telling one. This next poll, the question is, do you never go? Who out of the poll just never goes to worship God at all? Well, in 2019, 50% said we don't go anywhere. And then in 2020, 53% said, well, we don't go anywhere. And now here we are in 2021, and 57% answered the question, we don't go anywhere. You see a trend in that? You see what's happening? We've got a turn of those polled who were saying, well, now most of us don't go to church anywhere. We don't worship God of any kind. Don't even attempt to be uh, religious in any respect. Now, we look at these numbers, and, and I'll tell you what, brethren, it, it's kind of shocking to me to look at these numbers and say, this is the world that we live in. We live in a different world. It's changed. Even the society in general has become so irreverent and irreligious, not even make an attempt to worship God. Now, here's the question. Is the world that we live in really all that different from the world that the Apostle Paul is is really all that different from the world that Jesus lived in? Is it? You know, when we read in the book of Acts concerning the work of Paul in Acts chapter 18 and 19 and 20, as he came into the city of Ephesus and then later returned and spent a good bit of time there, we see a, a, a turning of those in Ephesus, and we're familiar with the text, how that they brought their books together. They practiced the magical arts and so forth, and they brought their books together, and they burned them, and the price was 50,000 pieces of silver. And so we've got a turning away from the practices of idolatry and witchcraft and that kind of thing, and they became Christians. And sometime later, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to these folks, and he's writing to the church, the church in Ephesus. And look at what he's telling the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 4, reading beginning in verse 17, the writer said, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk in the vanity of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardening of their heart, who being past feeling. You see, they had no consciousness of right or wrong. That was the context in which these Ephesians have come from. But now we've got a church. Now they have a consciousness about right and wrong. And Paul's concerned about them going back and being just like they used to be. And he said in verse 20, But ye did not so learn Christ, if so be that you heard him and were taught him, taught in him, even as the truth is in Christ, or in Jesus, that ye put away as concerning your former manner of life, the old man that waxeth corrupt after the lust of deceit, and that ye be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man that after God hath been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Now you'll notice in this text the apostle is pointing out, don't go back and live like you used to. Why? You used to do all these ugly things, but now you're in Christ. Put on the new man. Be the new man. Now, we've mentioned this before in previous studies. We said, see, this is new. It hath been long ago in the ages which were before us. My point is, when we look at what the Ephesians used to be, 
You want to know what they used to be? We mentioned witchcraft and sorcery. But look at this text. And you'll find in verse 25, he said, Wherefore putting away falsehood, speak ye truth one with his neighbor. Well, what does that tell us they used to do? Well, they didn't care anything about lying. And now Paul's cautioning these brethren, don't go back like you used to live. Don't become liars. Well, what else? He said, be angry and sin not. In verse uh, 28, let him that stole steal no more. Now, what did they used to do? They used to be thieves. What's Paul's concern? You go back and live like you used to. Brethren who are becoming thieves. Don't go back and live like the world lives. And you'll note in verse 31, I wish I could get verses 31 and 32 memorized by everybody that professes to be a Christian. He said, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and railing be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, even as God also in Christ forgave you. You ever have the occasion to go talk with a married couple that professes to be Christians and they're just scrapping all the time? You ever have to do that? Just scrapping all the time. I sat down with a fellow and his wife one time that was about my age and they were having all kinds of, of troubles and they thought that maybe I might be able to help them. And I raised the question. I said, do you ever find yourself into a disagreement? And then that disagreement turns into what I call a yow yow. You're just growling and fussing at each other. And then before long, you're just yelling and screaming at each other and nobody's listening. The fellow said, oh yeah, we do that all the time. Yeah, uh-huh. Are you surprised that you've got troubles? Paul said, let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and then there's that little word clamor. Now, you might be reading from a translation that uses a different word from that. But I would suggest to you that the definition of that's clamor. It's in essence, that yelling and screaming at each other and nobody's listening. That's clamor. Now, if you're making a list of sins that they formerly practiced, you put that on the list. And you recognize that that's sinful. We can't do that. And then he said, Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, even as God also in Christ forgave you. Young people, you memorize this passage. Commit that to memory. Because when you get married, you need to know what this says so that when conflict arises in your marriage, you mark a line and you say, Anything beyond that line is sinful. I'll not do it. Won't do that. The Apostle Paul was concerned about these folks right here in the church at Ephesus going back and living like they used to. And what'd they do? They'd have disagreements and fusses and they'd, before long they're just into a scrap yelling and screaming at each other just like folks do today. That's what they did. And he said, don't live that way. You see, the point is, there's not really anything new under the sun, is there? And so the world that we live in, it might be different from when you was a child, but it's not any different from what existed in first century times. And these characteristics that we see in Ephesians chapter 4 and on down into chapter 5 when he talks about them being fornicators and uncleanness and covetousness and foolish talking and saying ugly things. He said, you know, look at verse 5 of chapter 5. For this ye know of a surety that no fornicator nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Do you suppose the apostle Paul addressed some of these things when he was right there among them and 
told them, you're living this way. You can't live this way and go to heaven. That's why he could write these things to these brethren and say, you know of a surety you can't do this and go to heaven. They'd already been taught about those things. And the point is, don't go back and live like you used to live. You can't do that. And isn't that our concern? And isn't that the Lord's concern when he said, go make disciples, baptize them, and then you teach them. You teach them some more. You teach them how to live. And that's what we were talking about. The vanity of their mind darkened in their understanding, alienated from God. And the cause was because they didn't know. They were ignorant. They had hardened their heart. Well, is it possible for us to be taught, for us to know, and then just to forget? Maybe willfully forget, like the Apostle Peter identifies in 2 Peter chapter 3. We go back and live like we used to, and here's the consequence. Everybody's doing all kinds of ungodly things just because they want to. That's not anything new. Now what must we admit when we begin to raise the question, what does the future hold? We've got to admit, like I'm forced to do, that the world changes. It just does. And when you look in Exodus chapter 32, we note that Moses had led the children of Israel across the Red Sea. We read about the great plagues that were brought upon the nation of Egypt how that the Egyptian army was destroyed and now God is providing sustenance for His people, water out of rocks and manna from heaven and that kind of thing. And Moses up here on Mount Sinai talking to the Lord, receiving the Ten Commandments and the people then approach Aaron and they said to Aaron in Exodus chapter 32 and in verse that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. don't know what's become of him. And what did Aaron do? Aaron. He said, will you break off your golden rings which are in your ears, uh, the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them unto me? And they did so. And the text tells us in verse 4 that he took a graving tool and fashioned it into a calf. And they said, these are thy gods, O Israel, that brought thee up out of the land of Israel or the land of Egypt. And then what does Aaron say when Moses comes off that, that mountain and begins to approach the, Why, the people... You know, they brought their gold. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Moses wanted to know what they do to you. Well, they really didn't do anything. They just made a request and that's what he did. Does the world change? We've noted how that Moses or Joshua rather was instructed that he would lead these children across the Jordan River and into the promised land. And Joshua chapter 11 and Joshua chapter 21 and 23 affirms that he did just exactly that. Not one thing failed. But then you turn your Bible over to the very next book, the book of Judges. And you'll note in verse 10 of that text, it says, Also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them that knew not Jehovah, nor yet the work which he had wrought for Israel. Well, Joshua died, and now here everything's going to waste. Now if you'll turn in your Bible to the book of Judges, I want to just simply, as I've said before, skip the rock on the pond, highlight some things in it, and we'll move on. But look at verse 11. The children of Israel did that which was evil in the sight of Jehovah and served the Balaam. In verse 13, they forsook Jehovah and served Baal and the Ashereth. In chapter 3, verse 7, the children of Israel did that which was evil in the sight of Jehovah and forgot Jehovah their God and served the Balaam and the Ashereth. And I'd instruct you or just ask you to read through the book of Judges and see how many times you find that expression. That's what they did. And you know what happened? In a period of about 305 years, they had gone around the horn of being faithful to God, serving idols, 
being conquered by an oppressor, calling upon God to deliver them. He delivers them with a judge, and then they're faithful to God. They'd gone around that horn about 15 times. You say, how long did it take them to get the message? Well, evidently for quite a little while they didn't get it because when you come to the end of the book of Judges in chapter 21, verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Tell me something, brethren. Do we really live in a different We don't. And you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when the people rejected God as their leader, they said, give us a king. We want a king so we can be like the other nations round about us. Samuel said, this is what it's going to mean to you if you have a king. He's going to take your daughters and your son, put your sons in his army, take your daughters, and he'll make servants out of them. And it's not going to be good if you have a king. They said, that's all right. We'll have a king. We'll be like everybody round about us. All right. That's exactly what happened, wasn't it? They got him a king. And God said, don't be sorry, Samuel. They've not rejected you. They've rejected me. Now, when you turn in your Bible to the New Testament, we see that the same thing is true. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, reading beginning in verse 11, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Let a woman learn in quietness with all subjection, but I permit not a woman to teach nor to have dominion over a man, but to be in quietness. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not beguiled, but the woman being beguiled hath fallen into transgression. Let's just pause there in that reading. And what we note that here is an order. God has always had order. It's not an irreverent, disrespectful order, but it's God's order. And when we read this passage, we look round about us, and I dare say we don't have to go too far from this building. We'll find folks that call themselves a church of the Lord that have women that are leading their assemblies and preaching and doing all and What's this passage say? I didn't write it. That's just what God said about it. And it's a bad thing, I believe, that when we have to apologize for being a man. No, this is just God's order. It's what he said. And what we find in the world that we live in is things are changing. We talk about marriage. The question that the Jews ask of Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, really not all that new. They were interested in divorce for a reason. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for every cause? Go back and read the history. What were they doing? They were divorcing their wives for every cause. And now they want the Lord to justify it. He said, have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and the two shall be one flesh. Hadn't you read that? You go back to Genesis 2 and begin at verse 18 down through 24. You'll find that in verse 24. And his comment on that is what God has joined together. Let not man put asunder. You see this idea of divorcing for every cause, that's not anything not our purpose. That existed among the Jews. Now, it's not our purpose to examine at great length the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, but I'd suggest to you the subject of remarriage was not their question. Their question was about divorce. And they want to argue with the Lord from Deuteronomy 24. What about what Moses said? He said, what Moses said was said because of the hardness of your heart. But from the beginning, that was never so. Never so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife except for the cause of fornication and marries another commits adultery, and he that marrieth her that's put away doth commit adultery. Now let's go back to their question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any cause? No, sir. Is it lawful to, for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Did Moses say that? No, sir. Moses didn't say that. You go back to Deuteronomy 24, Moses 
had a restriction on it. It wasn't just for any cause. And when you look at what the Lord said, his point is it doesn't matter what Moses said. Here's what I'm telling you. And there's not just any cause. There's one. There's just one. Now, brethren, isn't that simple? Now, we think we've got troubles. We live in a different world. Oh, no, it's not all that different. It's the same world that's always been. And we've got to accept that, that change comes. And what do we do when some of these controversial changes come? What does the future hold? Well, it holds the same thing that it's ever held. You appeal to what God's Word says about it and you'll be fine. You'll survive the storm. Let's also note that the sin, sinful state of the world can help Christians to shine. I so appreciated prayers that have been offered this week about Christians, even in this place, being a light to the community. Some of you know that I am from Horse Cave, Kentucky, and I've traveled through several of the Mammoth Cave tours and several other caves that are in that part of the country, and one of the things that most of the guides like to do is to get you down about 350 feet below the surface of the earth and turn out the lights. You talk about dark. You can just feel the darkness. And often they will demonstrate what a little light from the light of one little match. You've been there and done that? Seen that illustration? It's a great illustration. But what are Christians in this dark world? Well, Jesus said, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You let your light shine. Don't put a basket over it. And you know why? so that the world may see God in you and give glory to God. They can glorify your Father who is in heaven. The Apostle Paul, writing to those in Philippi, in Philippians chapter 2, declared beginning in verse 13, verse 14 to this. He said, Do all things without murmurings and questionings, that ye may become blameless and harmless children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom ye are seen as lights, holding forth the word of life, that I may have whereof to glory in the day of Christ, that I did not run in vain, neither labor in vain. Christians, your light is to shine in this dark world in which we live. The Apostle Paul was cautioning Timothy to be careful about his influence. Let his light shine. Well, why? Because in this wicked world, many only see the hypocrisy of those who profess to be religious. Matthew 23 illustrates it time and again. Jesus called those who were scribes and Pharisees hypocrites because of their pretense to be something that they were not. Well, in John chapter 5 and verse 44, Jesus, after demonstrating the evidence of his claims to be the Son of God, number one, Moses testified of me. The Old Testament scriptures testified of me. John the Baptist testified of me. The miracles that I performed, the Father is testifying of me. But... The problem is, you see, he said, How can ye believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God? That's a good question, isn't it? You want to slap each other on the back and you're not concerned about what God thinks about you. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he said, He that showeth or showed, or he hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth Jehovah require of thee, but to do justly, justly and to love kindness and to walk humbly with thy God. And again, I'm going to say it. Isn't that simple? That's what he wants. Let your light shine in a wicked world. Now when we say, well, the world is different and I'm concerned about what it's going to be tomorrow, what does the future hold? Brethren and friends, teach your children, teach your grandchildren. You want to know what the future holds? To a great degree, that depends upon what you teach your children. And we want to look at just a few passages. And 
In doing so, I want to call your attention. Well, let me get back to where I was. Teach our children. There's the point that I want to look at. And the passage is Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Read with me beginning in verse Deuteronomy chapter 4 I have on the board, but I want to go to chapter 6. Look at verse 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6. And these words which I command thee this day shall be upon thy heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be for frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thy house and upon thy gates. You teach them when they get up, when they go to bed. It's a constant conversation you're having with your children to teach them the things they need to know. We mentioned this morning Exodus chapter 12 and how that they observed the Passover. And this was to be a memorial feast to remind their children. So when their children said, what, do these, what does this feast mean? You can tell them about the great things that God... And noted that pillar of stones, how that it was erected so when their children and grandchildren would ask, what does this mean? They could tell them about the great things that God did to bring them into this land to teach them about God. And then in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4, the fathers are to teach their children, to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Young people, if your parents talk with you about the Bible, they read the Bible to you. They're talking to you about spiritual things, how to make wise choices in your life. You go home this evening and you give them a big old hug around the neck and tell them how much you love them. Because the reason they do that is they're concerned about what the future holds. They're trying their best to give you the tools that you need to make sound decisions because we live in a changing world. And if you don't have the tools to make those decisions, you're going to mess up. And your godly parents are concerned about you and that's why they talk with you about these things morning, noon, and night. Yes, we live in a wicked world. And what does the future hold? Christians must not overlook the importance of righteousness in a wicked world. Well, we've, we've covered that. I don't know why I have that in the wrong order as far as the charts are concerned. But I want to suggest to you, my friends, that there's reason for us to be optimistic. I know a lot of the things that we've talked about this week when we talk about living in a different world perhaps are a little bit discouraging, maybe even a bit disquieting. And we say, well, is it, is it all blue? Is it all dark clouds? Well, no. No, it don't have to be. The Apostle Paul said that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. We know in 2 Timothy chapter 2, chapter 4, verse 2, Paul said, Preach the word. Be urgent in season. Now, there was a time in my life I wasn't so sure I understood what that meant. I had a brother, old brother, tell me one time, that means you preach it when they like it and you preach it when they don't like it. Well, that's right. But let me show you an application that I hadn't thought of until only recently. Somebody said, you know, we live in a changing world. Well, that's right. And those of you who are older, you may remember having gospel meetings when you had to bring out chairs from the classroom and set them up in the hallways and in the aisleways. And, and a long time ago, they'd open the windows and there would be folks that would be standing out in the yard and hear the gospel preached. And folks just flocked to hear the gospel preached. Is it that way today? We've had, I think, some great attendance in this meeting, and I'll say more about that in a minute. I'm just so thrilled to be here, and you've encouraged me, brethren, more than you could possibly know. But the world is not flocking to hear the gospel like they did. 
And I'm persuaded that there is a time that passes, but that's not today, is it? We live in a different world. In season, out of season. Sometimes the gospel is appealing. People want to study, they want to hear it, they want to know what it says. And when they hear it, it's simple. They want to obey it, and they become faithful to the Lord. And then sometimes we just kind of hit a season of time when folks are not interested. They're just not coming. Now what do you do? You preach the Word. You just keep on preaching it. You keep on preaching it. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel was told to go and preach to this rebellious people. And God told that Old Testament prophet, don't you be rebellious. Now what's he telling him? Well, the results of your preaching may not produce a whole lot of fruit, but don't you shirk in your duty to preach it. You just keep making known the message in season and out of season. And I believe that's right. I believe that's what Paul's telling Timothy. You preach it when folks will listen to it, and you preach it when folks won't listen to it, but you just keep on preaching the message because that's the power of God unto salvation. I said that there's reason for optimism. I want to suggest to you that when Jesus said, go preach the gospel to every creature, that's exactly what he meant. Go preach it to every creature. Somebody earlier was talking about sowing the seed. And I said, that's right. We're seed sowers. We're not soil testers. But sometimes we want to determine who we think is going to be most likely candidate to obey the gospel. And sometimes our judgment is just wrong on that. A friend of mine up in Kentucky, he drove a bus for a living. And he got acquainted with a fellow that was... I'll use this expression. Uh, he was a biker dude. Does that mean anything to you? Does it draw a kind of a stereotypical picture for you? Well, this guy was kind of rough, and he had tattoos everywhere, and they said every ungodly thing you can imagine. Would you want to go? He taught that man to try to talk to him about the gospel. This preacher friend of mine did. He taught that man the truth. That man and his wife and his family began to come. That man and his wife obeyed the gospel. And you know, tattoos kind of hard to remove but that man in the heat of the summer with nearly 98% humidity he'd always wear a shirt with a collar and the long sleeves because he was ashamed of what his tattoos said he obeyed the gospel he didn't live that way anymore now let's not be soil testers let's just use some illustrations we look at Cornelius and we know that he was a Gentile he was a centurion that is a soldier who's appointed to watch over a hundred soldiers. Now we see this man commended in Acts chapter 10. He was well thought of by friends and neighbors. He was well thought of by the Jewish community over which he was to oversee. He is described as a worshiper of God and a man who prayed to God always. Well respected. But he was a Gentile. Now what kind of trouble did the apostle Peter get in with Christians because he had gone to that man? You see, Jews don't have anything to do with Gentiles. The Apostle Peter was of Jewish background, and Christians in Jerusalem who had become Christians were of Jewish background, and here's Peter going down to Caesarea talking to this Gentile. Well, you can't be doing that. And so now we've got an issue. The Jews who had become Christians said, no, you can't be having anything to do with this Gentile. And then what about Simon in Acts chapter 8? Here is a man that gave out that he was some great one. He wanted to be recognized as some kind of a god. And the passage tells us that he had deceived the people with his witchery or his magical arts. 
And he heard the same gospel that the rest of the Samaritans did. And the text tells us that Simon also himself believed and was baptized. And he beheld the things that Philip did, and he himself was amazed. That passage always kind of impressed me because here's a man that knows what's true and what's false. He knows how to deceive the people, and he knows what's genuine. And he knew that he was a deceiver, and what Philip was doing was absolutely authentic. He was performing miracles. Now, would you want to go to approach a man like that? Would you? Would you walk up to him and say, how about a Bible study? Or would you say, no, here's somebody that's, you know, mid-range as far as the, their economics is concerned, got household of kids, and we'll go talk to him instead. No. What about those in Corinth? When you read of their past, as we've done earlier this week in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, there were some who were homosexuals. There were some who were fornicators in general. There were some who were idolaters. There were some who were covetous, extortioners, and the list goes on. Such were some of you, but you were washed, justified, and sanctified. And the account of Acts 18 tells us they heard the gospel, they believed it, and they were baptized. Would you go into an environment like that? Or would we say, no, I, I won't ever go there. I had somebody get all over us one time about a dear friend of mine who went to Las Vegas. <laughs> well, you see, a Christian can't go to an ugly place like Las Vegas. I tell you what, brethren, there's a good church in Las Vegas. They're doing well. Now somebody preached the gospel there. Somebody preached the gospel in Corinth. Somebody's preaching the gospel around here. You are. Let's not consider any particular place unworthy of the gospel. And the apostle Peter, when he preached to those Jews in Acts chapter 2, you know, this is that bunch of Jews that cried out, Hosanna in the highest, and then just a day or so later said, Crucify him, crucify him. Apostle Paul said, you did that because you didn't know. You didn't know. And your rulers in the third chapter, they did that in ignorance. They didn't know either. And then there's Saul of Tarsus. You remember that Saul was on his way to Damascus when the Lord appeared to him, and Ananias was told then, after Saul came to the city to go and find this man. Talk to him. He said, well, I, I've heard all kinds of ugly things, but I don't want to talk to him. But he went and he talked to him. And he said, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. You know, the reactions of Saul, of Saul is described for us in Acts 9, verse 18. He arose and was baptized. His sins were washed away. And we find a very bold and courageous man that defended the like Saul the rest of his life. Now, would you approach somebody like Saul? How about the jailer in Acts chapter 16? When I was growing up, jailers weren't much ahead of the criminals that they put in jail. But the point being, that Philippian jailer, he had learned some things from Paul and Silas. And he thought that everybody in the prison house was gone because of the earthquake. And Paul said, do thyself no harm. We're all here. And he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus, thou and thy house, and thou shalt be saved. Now it doesn't stop there because verse 32 tells us that they taught him what to believe. They preached to him the word of God. And he and all of his house were baptized.
See, let us not ever become soil testers. You don't know who might be receptive to the gospel. We'll always pigeonhole somebody that's mid-America type economics and got a house full of kids and a dog and a cat that get along. Well, they're likely prospects. Let's go talk with them about the gospel. You don't know that. You don't know really who is a likely prospect. But you preach the gospel to every creature. That's what the Lord said. And that's what we must do. of the gospel that and resulted in redemption, the forgiveness of sin. You've got to tell people what the Lord says. That's why he said, go preach the gospel to the whole creation, to every creature. And when you turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's what he says. For I make known unto you, brethren, the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye received, wherein also ye are saved, by which also ye are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached unto you, except you believed in vain. He preached to them, the gospel. In our study this morning, we found that Acts chapter 2 is where Peter tied it all together. You remember the Lord told the apostles in Luke's account of what we call the Great Commission to go back to the city of Jerusalem and remain there till you receive the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 1, he told them the same thing. He said that the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you not many days hence. And in Acts chapter 2, we find the Holy Spirit descending upon them just exactly like the Lord said. And they began to speak the mighty works of God in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And what do we find in Acts chapter 2 as we were talking about this morning in verse 36, 7, 8, and 9? Peter declared unto them that this Jesus whom ye crucified, God has raised him from the dead, made him both Lord and Christ. They were pricked in their heart and said, What shall we do? He said, Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for to you is the promise and to your children and to all that are far off even as many as the Lord our God shall call unto him. Isn't that profound? He preached the message of repentance and remission of sins for the very first time in Acts chapter 2. That means that Acts chapter 2 then becomes the hub of the Bible. That's where it all comes together. And Paul's sermon in Acts 10, or Peter's sermon in Acts 10 to the household of Cornelius, he's preaching the message of remission of sins. Just read the text. And when you read in Acts chapter 13, the apostle Paul in Antioch of Pisidia is, is teaching those people about the plan of God. And you'll go back and find a very detailed history of, their, of the Jewish people. But the highlights of that history is the promise of a Savior like we were talking about this morning who would provide for them remission of sins. That was the focal point of the gospel. And when you look at Paul's sermon on Mars Hill there in the city of Athens, he teaches, but I'm going to tell you, if there's one God that you worship in ignorance, you don't know anything about him. But I'm going to tell you, and he did. And then he said that God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. Why? And as much as he has appointed the day in which you'll judge the world, that includes you, by the man whom he hath ordained. Now when you read that, what was Paul's sermon about? He was preaching about salvation to a worldly idolatrous group of people. And he was telling them about a Savior. You see, in all the changes that we witness today, let us not change the gospel. Let's not change the means by which somebody can be saved. You see, we can't put a hook out there with a juicy worm on it like we're trying to catch a fish and say, well, what do you want? So we'll supply the community with what you want. We'll teach you later. No, no, we've got to teach you the gospel because sin will kill your soul. Let's see the urgency of that in season and out of season. So when we look at this question, what does the 
the future hold. Joshua said to those people that he was about to lead across the Jordan River, you've not passed this way before. So in a very real sense, what does the future hold? Well, I don't know. And you don't either. Because none of us are prophets. We can't look into the future. But we know the tools that God has given us, don't we? We have those tools. We can study, know what the Bible says, and equip ourselves so that we can take the gospel to those who are lost. Now Joshua, he had made a decision, and you can too. Joshua said, If it seem evil to you to serve Jehovah, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we'll serve Jehovah. We're going to serve the Lord. Now when we ask this question, what does the future hold? Don't it wholly depend on you? And what decisions that we make? When we talk about this local church, that's a legitimate question. The future holds your hold. Boy, that depends on you. When you talk about your life, what does the future hold? Well, that depends on you. When you talk about eternity, what does the future hold? Well, that depends on you. And what decisions you make about your life now. Now, perhaps I'm talking to somebody in this good crowd of folks tonight who is not a Christian. And you're asking this question, well, what does the future hold for me? Well, that would be a decision you've got to make about your life. You can choose to change the direction of your life and serve the Lord. And then you can read in your Bible what the future will hold for you. For as you turn in your Bible and read the great judgment scene of Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, you see the separation of the sheep and the goats, those on the left hand, those on the right, and those on the left hand were instructed to depart, and those on the right were instructed to come into this place that I prepared for you from the foundation of the world, eternal life. Now do you see that that judgment was based on the decisions that they had made? What about you tonight? Do you believe that Jesus is the Savior, the Son of the living God, that God sent His Son to die for you? Would you repent of your sin? That means godly sorrow. I'm sorry for what I did because it was an offense to God. Would you then confess your faith and be baptized into Christ? Now that sounds simple, doesn't it? Jesus called that being born again, born anew, into the family of God. Now perhaps you're a part of God's family. You've done that. You're not faithful to the Lord. What does the future hold for you? Well, it's not a pretty picture. If you're not faithful, ultimately, you'll be sentenced to a place that's prepared for the devil and his angels. That's not a pretty picture. But it can be eternal life. And that's dependent upon your decisions. You can repent of the sin and ask God's forgiveness. If we can help you with that, please make it known while we stand and while we sing the song.